0: Well, it is good to be back with everyone again for the third week of our Advent series. We are getting closer and closer to Christmas, uh, closer and closer to um, the wonderful story that's unfolding as we anticipate and look forward to the birth of Jesus. And in our first week, we looked at what the coming of the Messiah meant to the Israelites, to the story of Israel, the Hebrew Bible Last week we looked at how Jesus came in as the light of the world, that we are freed from darkness and that we get to walk in his light and we get to ponder the Christmas lights as a reminder uh, for that light that we get to walk in. And this week we are actually going to talk about the birth of Jesus. We're going to read the story together and we are going to do it. Um, As I thought, you know, what's the best way to teach the story of the birth of Jesus? I'm confident you've all heard it before. Uh, And I couldn't think of anything better than to do it how the the gospel writers did. So we're going to look at a couple genealogies. Don't worry, it's going to be interesting. And we're not actually going to read the genealogies, so it's going to be helpful. And we'll look at a couple passages of Mary as she wrestles with the realization and understanding of the weight of the birth of Jesus. And then we will read the story out of Luke together. So, would you pray with me? Close your eyes and pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are here with us tonight. Lord, as we come to your scripture, as we get ready ready to hear from you, Father, I ask that the weight of this week the weight of today would fall from our shoulders lord that we can just take a big deep breath we can understand and recognize the importance of gathering here together as the body of Christ, that we have the opportunity to worship with one another. We have the opportunity to learn about you. We have the opportunity to be changed by you and your Holy Spirit as your scriptures come alive and are illuminated in our own hearts. We have the opportunity to be convicted by you, Father, and, and then ultimately we have the opportunity to give all of that glory and praise right back to you as we are so grateful for the grace that you give us, and the ways that you change our lives, Father. So I ask that tonight you would make yourself known to us as we read your scriptures and know more about you. In your name, amen, amen. All right, so as we look at where the story begins with these genealogies, we have kind of two parallel passages. We have Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. And Matthew's genealogy, um, he is writing to the Hebrews. He is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews. Luke is a Greek writing to Greeks. We have Matthew tracing his genealogy back to Abraham, so it was important that he wanted to connect Jesus to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew race, while we have Luke tracing his genealogy back to Adam, because Luke wanted us to know that Jesus was connected to the human race. We have Matthew proving that he came to save the Jews, and we have Luke proving that Jesus came to save the Gentiles. Matthew is wanting to highlight that Jesus is the Messiah, and Luke is wanting to highlight that Jesus is the second Adam. So Matthew puts his genealogy at the very beginning of his book, and we've been going through Matthew, and at one point, Michael did preach on this genealogy, and I should have timestamped it. It was probably many years ago, Um, but the very first page, first verses out of Matthew's gospel is his genealogy, and that's because he wanted us to know that Jesus' royal Hebrew origin comes before anything else. Before you know anything else about who this Messiah is, know that he is connected to this Hebrew origin. And so if the Jews wanted to know, is Jesus the Messiah, they would indeed be asking the questions, is he the son of Abraham and is he from the house of David? Those are two very important questions they would want answered because these are two people that God made unconditional covenants with for the nation of Israel. And it seems that Matthew was successful. There aren't more passages in the book of Matthew that indicate there were any concerns about people believing that Jesus was connected to Abraham and or from the line of David. So Matthew did a good job of answering those questions. No one could disprove, at the very least, even if they disproved a lot of other things or didn't believe a lot of other things about Jesus, tried to disprove him, they at least had to concede This is the line he was from, because Matthew did a really good job at proving that in this genealogy. So while Matthew started with his genealogy and then told you about the birth of Jesus, Luke, on the other hand, actually starts with the birth of Jesus and talks, um, there's some other stories too, but his genealogy comes afterwards. It's a bit of this interlude because he wants to highlight that there's this saving ministry of the Lord. Uh, Scholar J. Dwight Pentecost said this about these two different genealogies. While Matthew presented Jesus as Israel's Messiah, Luke presented Jesus as the Son of Man. From the days of Daniel, the the title Son of Man was considered by the Jews to be a messianic title. Luke no less than Matthew presented Jesus as the Messiah, but while Matthew was concerned with Messiah in relation to Israel, Luke was concerned with Messiah in relation to the entire human race. According to the Old Testament, Messiah would not only rule over Israel, but over all nations. He was to be the world's Messiah as well as Israel's. So when we look at both of these genealogies, From a textual standpoint, we see there's just this really beautiful picture presented of this holistic impact that Jesus had on the world when he entered it. He had been the culmination of the Hebrew story as we've seen, he's connected to Abraham, he's connected to David. He is the answer to their wrestling, the relief to their pain, he is their Messiah. But not only is he that descendant of David, we can also trace him back to the garden. He is that seed of Eve, who will crush the serpent. He is the second Adam, the one who will withstand temptation when we can't. He is the one who can fix the problems created on page one. So his kingdom is for both Jews and Gentiles. His kingdom is for you and me too. And he's the second chance at humanity. Okay, how are we doing? Genealogy really great. You never knew you could learn so much about genealogies, right? It's always normally the thing you just skip past because it's really, they're kind of hard to read. (laughs) I don't blame you. Okay, now we are going to, now we're actually gonna read. I didn't want to make you guys read the genealogies, but they're still important. So we're gonna open up to Luke 1 if you have your Bibles. We'll be reading lots out of the book of Luke, so feel free to follow along on the screen as well. So in Luke 1, Starting in verse 26, we're gonna read a chunk of this scripture, and this is uh, the angel visiting Mary, saying, hey, you're about to give birth, all right. Starting in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Notice how Luke also wants to make sure we can make that connection of the descendants of David, even here in the text. Verse 28, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. I think that line is so funny, like, what kind of greeting is that? What kind of salutation is that? What is this? What's going on? Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. That's John the Baptist. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the servant of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So there's lots of key language that we can be picking up and maybe as we've been studying these things, you actually picked up on them yourself. Things like son of the most high. He will have the throne of his father David. He will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. There's specific words like throne, house, kingdom. These are all just rich with comparison to the covenant that Yahweh made with David in 2 Samuel 7 where God told David, I will raise up your descendant after you, I will establish his kingdom, I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So this, these, this, these words, this language to Mary from the angel is just this clear connection, this clear announcement by the angel, this child is the fulfillment of this covenant with David. Mary, continuing on in verse 46 then, has this really beautiful song that she sings, if you will, um, or poem poetry. Um, You know, we just have Mary said. But anytime you kind of see, um, if you're looking at your Bible, how it's indented, it looks different. You can tell it's not just narrative. Um, It's it's because it's a poem, and so any time, I had a, a teacher tell me this once, anytime time a poem is in the middle of a narrative like this, it's kind of like a light post. We're like, that's different, and it just makes you kind of like stop a little bit, ponder it a little bit, and, forces you to kind of realize that this light post, if here's the narrative, this light post is kind of standing above it. And it's just connected to a lot of other things. And there's just maybe a lot more going on in this rich poetry um, and this song than we realize fully. So let's read it, Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and, he, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble he has filled the hungry with good things and he sent away the rich empty-handed he has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy and he has spoken to our fathers to Abraham and his descendants forever now this song of praise uh, we could spend a lot of time on it. We won't spend too much time because I want to get to the birth story of Jesus. But she's quoting Psalms left and right. She's echoing uh, the song of Hannah in First Samuel about the Lord blessing Hannah with a child, Samuel. There's this, you could do a whole study on um, barren women who then were given a child, a seed, um, all the way from Eve to Hannah to Mary to Elizabeth. There's all sorts of um, wonderful stories here. But some of her language, he has regard for the humble state of his servant. The mighty one has done great things for me. He has brought down the mighty and exalted the humble. In his mercy, he has given help to Israel. So we remember that Yahweh remembers his promises. Israel had been very unfaithful to Yahweh. Israel was in exile because of their disobedience and their idols and their wicked ways. And yet here God is being faithful to his promise that there would be a son of Mary and that would be David, one of David's sons. He would sit on David's throne and rule on David's kingdom forever. So just two comments about Mary's song. One, God is good on his promises. Regardless of how faithful we are, especially considering how unfaithful we are, Even after generations of unfaithfulness, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace still came into this world. And that God's goodness is dependent upon his character, not on our ability or inability to remain faithful to him. God didn't have to send in the son. He didn't have to. We didn't deserve it. None of us deserved it. And yet God said, no, I made a promise and I'm going to fulfill that. A second comment about Mary's song here is that God can do mighty acts through the humblest of people. In fact, God often chooses the lowly and the least expected, the people in the background. We'll see that again later with the shepherds. So if you're sitting here feeling like someone with just very little gifts, very little to offer, thinking, man, I'm just, I'm not the person in the spotlight, I'm the humble one, I'm just the one in the background. God will, you, will, you use, will use you in mighty ways. Not even just that he might use you, but he will. And a beautiful story can unfold and just beyond what you could even imagine if you just simply say yes. All right, we continue on. Luke two, we're now gonna read the birth story of Jesus. So I'll read the whole passage, and then we'll break down some individual verses here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first consensus taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Verse 6, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the great angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as been told to them. Beautiful story. The beautiful story of the birth of our Savior, and there's so many remarkable circumstances with which he came into this world. First, in verse 7, he was wrapped just in cloths and laid in a manger. Now just ponder this for a second. He wasn't wrapped in anything royal nothing, no oh, purple robes, nothing that would indicate any form of royalty or any form of wealth. He wasn't in a place surrounded by comfort, lots of people and anything he needed at his beck and call, and he was not placed on a throne, but in a manger. He was placed in a manger used for, cattle, for food, for cattle, only to become the bread of life for all humanity so that whoever comes to him will never grow hungry or thirsty again. In verse 8, the people who learned first about the birth of the Messiah were shepherds. This is very interesting. Shepherds were not important people. They weren't influential. They didn't have any political or religious power. And even more so, they were total outcasts. They were rejected from society because they couldn't keep up with the customary laws of ceremonial purification. So they were actually considered unclean. So they were just outside, away from everyone else. Um, People thought that they were ignorant because they didn't keep up with keeping themselves clean, um, ceremonial, ceremoniously clean. So they just lived out in the fields with their sheep. That's what they did. And, I think it's even remarkable that they had a profession that Jesus would later identify himself with. That many years, Jesus would say the words, I am the good shepherd. And a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Just as a shepherd knows his sheep, Jesus knows us and cares for us. And in verse nine, to these sheep, or sorry, (laughs) well, the sheep were there too, they saw it. But to the shepherds, the glory of the Lord appeared. This is something that really struck me. You know, it's kind of like you read it, you read these passages so many times, and then you read something, and you're like, "Has that always been there?" Um, the fact that the glory of the Lord was there too. So it's not just that angels visited, because angels visited Mary and Joseph, but the glory of the Lord was here. So this glory of the Lord is like the same glory that appeared in the tabernacle. It's the same glory that filled the temple it's the same glory that hadn't been seen in over 500 years since ezekiel's vision of the glory leaving the temple in ezekiel 10 and 11. so it's really remarkable and very interesting that this glory did not appear to the priests in the temple but appeared to a group of shepherds in a field Just a really interesting and beautiful indication of how Jesus is going to operate his ministry moving forward with any and everyone, not just specific people in specific areas. In verse 10, the angels say that this good news is for all people. They wanted to make it very clear, we bring good news available for all people. It's that same way that God promised Abraham that all people on the earth will be blessed through you. His promise isn't just for the nation of Israel, but for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 12, the sign of the Messiah, the way that the shepherds would know who this Messiah is, the marker of the Messiah, is again wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. It wasn't even, hey, you're gonna see a baby born and it's the Messiah. It was, you'll know this is who it is. He's in a manger. You can't miss him. This child who had been identified as the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, once again, no royal identification for him. He came in just the humblest of circumstances. In verses 17 and 18, I'll read them again. When they, the shepherds, had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. The shepherds were the first evangelists. They got to tell everyone about the birth of the baby. (laughs) And they were way less concerned about their experience. I think the fact that they saw the glory of the Lord is definitely something to say, hey, guess what? We saw the glory of the Lord, which hasn't been around in a long time. But they were way less concerned about their own experience and way more concerned about making it known what had been told to them about the child, about the significance of this child. And just like Mary, I love that the shepherds were just the least likely group of people that God used. And it reminds me too, if the shepherds were the first people to tell people about the birth of Jesus, it makes me think of after Jesus had risen. And the first people to proclaim the tomb is empty were women, not not voices that were at that time really respected or had given much weight to, but Jesus wanted women to be the one to proclaim, Jesus has risen from the dead, the tomb is empty. So it really is very remarkable that the shepherds were the ones that got to give this good news. It wasn't even John the Baptist that said, hey, the baby has been born, it was the shepherds. Um, jo- J. Dwight Pentecost, again, he said, the implications of their announcement was that the Messiah had come, the Redeemer had come, the one who will rule over Israel had come. People could now enter into the kingdom of the Prince of Peace. Beautiful, as we've been talking about this kingdom of God that we get to see the beginning of it. So, what is the significance of Jesus coming to this earth? Well, the birth of Jesus is the introduction of Emmanuel, God with us. And I have three things that I think really encapsulate what this means for us. The first one, a God who is accessible. Second is a God who is relatable, and a God who is peaceful. So the first one, what does it mean for us that God is with us? It brings a God who is accessible. So, we could not do anything to get up to God. He had to come down to us, and he chose to come down to us. Sin had separated us from the presence of God, and I've talked about this before, but if we can consider again that the presence of God dwelt in temples. These spaces were holy, and you had to be ritually clean in order to be in the presence of God. And so God's holiness couldn't be in the presence of unholiness, and the language of holy and unholy is similar to the language of clean and unclean. If you were clean, you could be in the presence, but if you were unclean, you could not. And so God, holiness, entered into the unholiness of the world, and that's very important here because holiness couldn't be in unholy spaces. So think about it this way, if you were to touch a leper who was unclean, that made you unclean. And so then you had to be cleansed. It wasn't, that's, we kind of think of it in terms of like, oh, so it's like sin, well not necessarily, Um, unholy in the sense that you were unclean. So you just needed to be cleansed, go through the um, ceremonial laws and become cleansed in order to then be able to be in society again. But, when we have Jesus enter the scene, Jesus then is this portable temple, if you will. He didn't stay in one place. He moved to all sorts of different places. His presence wasn't contained to one space, but instead, he could touch an unclean person, and instead of him being unclean, his cleanliness went to that person, and they were healed. So, when we talk about a God who is accessible, what was once contained to a space that we could not enter or even consider being near, his presence came in the form of a person. He wasn't a building, he wasn't a, a cloud or wind or something in the sky or in the form of thunder and lightning, a voice on a mountaintop or a fire in a bush. He was a human. That's the most relatable thing I can think of. So then the next point, Emmanuel, God with us, also means a God who is relatable. I think when we think about God with us, those of us, those of us, all of us, who are um, post-Jesus, rising from the dead, and the Holy Spirit being here, is that when we think of God with us, we think of Holy Spirit with us, which is great and good, and I think the best way that we have the Holy Spirit in us and something that they couldn't have probably even comprehended, um, these, all, all of our forefathers that we read about couldn't even comprehend what it meant that the Holy Spirit dwelt within us. But let's just take a step back, because we don't maybe quite have the framework for God with us, meaning Jesus, human with us. So, God with us, Jesus, human with us means God sitting in the pew next to us, person sitting next to us, simply sitting there, breathing, smiling, yawning, getting tired, desiring connection with others, making friends, bearing burdens with one another. He is relatable because he's human, and so we just decided to do what we do wrestle through our own human problems and issues and difficulties, God could have just saved all of us all at once. He could have just said, I'm going to fix the problem of sin. I'm just going to do it with nothing else, no other requirement, no other skin in the game. But instead, he decided to do it through a human. He himself decided to come into this world to cry with his disciples when his friends died, to have dinner with his friends, to spend time with fishermen, to lay down his life for his friends. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of the God, the invisible God, who once could not really be seen or comprehended came. He is the image. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, the God of the universe made himself known. This human that upholds everything, the, this mighty cosmic being who is so beyond us came to this earth so that he could kneel down before the woman caught in adultery and say, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. This axis is just unlike any other interaction that God has had with this people before. And it's just a really true representation of God with us. And then my final comment about Emmanuel, God with us, is that it brings a God who is peaceful. So Jesus brings peace in countless ways. The first is by reconciling the world back to himself and forgiving sins. So this reconciliation happens at a personal level, Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, there is not tension in between our relationship with God, there's peace. The reconciliation also happened on a more global level by breaking down the division by Jew and Gentile like we've looked at several times tonight. In Ephesians, Paul tells the church in Ephesus that there was a division between the uncircumcised and the circumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles. But those who were once strangers to the covenant now have hope. In Ephesians 2, 13 through 14, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly, were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you, formerly Gentiles. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So, so the fact that Jesus entered into this world and that he made his kingdom a kingdom for all, the way that he could do that was him himself being our peace of breaking down that wall between Jew and Gentile. He breaks down anything that separates us, welcomes us all into his family. And finally, Jesus brings peace into our own hearts when we feel overwhelmed. I did just a little bit of research here Um, On stress, (laughs) I have some stats for us on stress and anxiety. And according to the American Institution of Stress, 73% of people experience stress that affects their physical health. All right? 73% of people have stress that impacts their mental health. 48% of people have trouble sleeping because of stress. Top causes of stress, money, work, the economy, um, people, (laughs) family responsibilities, (laughs) relationships, Uh, even beyond stress, anxiety and depression has also significantly increased, especially post-pandemic. Boston College researchers found that anxiety increased to 50% and depression to 44% by November 2020, which was six times higher than 2019. Six times higher. So, I know you know it, but I come to remind you that Jesus offers another way. The way of Jesus is humble and calm. The way of Jesus is in its own timing, and the way of Jesus brings life. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, be anxious for nothing but in everything, in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a verse that I just come back to over and over again. How could I possibly have peace in this circumstance? The Lord. The only way I could have peace in these circumstances. I have a a quote from A.W. Tozer One of my favorite theologians, here as we close, he said, the certainty that God is always near us, present in all parts of his world, closer to us than our thoughts, should maintain us in a state of high moral happiness most of the time. So he's saying this good news that we have, it should make you happy most of the time, right? That's really good news that he is near us, but not all of the time. It would be less than honest to promise every believer continual jubilee and less than realistic to expect it. As a child may cry out in pain, even now when sheltered in its mother's arms, so a Christian may sometimes know that it is to suffer even in the conscious presence of God. Though always rejoicing, Paul admitted that he was sometimes sorrowful, and for our sakes, Christ experienced strong crying and tears though he never left the bosom of the Father, but all will be well. The knowledge that we have never alone, that we are never alone, calms the troubled sea of our lives and speaks to our souls. So despite all of our circumstances, we can have the peace that comes with the presence of Christ, knowing that he is with us. So I want to leave you with one final passage And it's one of my favorite passages out of the Bible. It's Psalm 23. And there's something about when I read this passage that I kind of have this mental picture. I don't know if you have mental pictures when you are trying to like calm yourself. Like I need to go somewhere mentally in my mind when I'm overwhelmed. And the place that I go to is Psalm 23. And I just have this mental picture of a garden, still waters, and there's just like green, there's it's lush, there's fruit of the vine. It's only calm here in this garden. There's no stress. Even if someone tries to stress me out, there's, it's not possible. The Lord is there, he's walking beside me. Or I suppose he's um, forcing me uh, into this garden because sometimes I just feel so overwhelmed by the chaos outside of it that I just need the Lord to bring me into this garden. He's in charge of the garden, he calms me. So, I wanna read Psalm 23 over you guys so you can close your eyes. And maybe you can give yourself a mental picture of a garden if that's helpful for you. But know that these words are available to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we thank you for the peace that is given to us in your presence. Lord, we we know it, we've experienced it, we sense it, we know that there is such goodness and richness in these quiet places near your heart, Father. So I ask that we can just remain tethered to your goodness. Father, I ask that we can recognize what Emmanuel, God with us, implies. What it has meant for us individually and what it means for us moving forward. Our lives are changed because of you, Father. And we have nothing but thanks to give to you for what you have done for us and how you have changed us. So Lord, as we sing to you in worship, I just ask that our praises would, all glory and praise would just be given to you because of what you've done for us. Father, we thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your love. your name, amen.